Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Good morning, church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is living and enduring. We people are like grass. Our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word, O Lord, endures forever. As we study your word this morning, may it be good news to us, more desirable than fine gold and sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. Lord Jesus, let your word be a double-edged sword, piercing us to the divisions of our soul and our spirit, our joints and our marrow, discerning our thoughts, and even the intentions of our heart. Holy Spirit, would you come and continue to feel this place? Cut us to the heart and breathe life into us so that we can hear the word of the Lord and live by it. In the name of Jesus, the word made flesh. Amen. So in this sermon series thus far, we've highlighted how discrimination based on race and ethnicity gender and age, and socioeconomic and educational class has caused divisions in the church and has led to corporate sin patterns. Discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity, gender, age, and class means that we assign an inferior or a superior value to a person or group of people according to these external characteristics. And such beliefs and acts go against who God has made and intended us to be. And therefore, they are sinful. If we treat anyone as less than made in the image of God, or as a person for whom Christ died, it's discrimination and it's grievous. Discrimination can sneak into our church and become part of normal life and make it corporate. This corporate sin leads to the building of walls of hostility, which Christ has already died to take down. Corporate acts of discrimination hurt our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and hurt our witness to the world about who Jesus is and who his church should be. So in response, we've been led through a process of reconciliation, lament, over the hurt and damage that the sin has done, repentance, asking, Lord, what shall we do? Forgiveness, realizing that we can ask for forgiveness from one another and from the Lord because Christ has forgiven us. And then last week, we talked about first steps of reconciliation, remembering that we are ambassadors of reconciliation because Christ has first reconciled us to himself and has given us this ministry. So today, with great joy, I love this passage. We're going to look at our new identity as Christ's reconciled people in his church, found in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. And we are going to see how we can be transformed from a pile of rubble into living stones, being built into a spiritual house and a people for God. So some context is seen here. You can see that the map shown there 
circles modern day Turkey. And that is the area, uh, Asia Minor, to whom Peter was writing. While there is some scholarly debate, it's thought that this letter was written around 65 AD. And the churches there were facing persecution from the Roman Empire. The churches would have included people from mixed race and ethnic backgrounds, some Jews, some non-Jewish God-fearers or followers, but many were pagan Gentiles previously. And Peter addresses this letter to elect exiles. Very weird. How can you be both elect and an exile? On one hand, they were elected members of God's new family, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, they were exiles, persecuted and marginalized, with no true home in the world that they lived in. Now, as fairly new Christians, many likely faced an identity crisis that we can identify with. They wondered, am I to be the person that is normative based upon my culture and society? Or how, in the midst of that, do I become like Christ? Now, not only was this new identity challenging because they were learning how to be Christ-like for the first time, but also because as they identified as Christians, they were going to face persecution. Yet amidst in this tumultuous situation, Peter calls them to have joy and hope in suffering and to have confidence in their new identity in Christ. So we're going to read the passage today, and I want you to look for the ways that Peter describes the church and why. So let's read. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe and for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what are the images and the metaphors that Peter uses to describe the church here? You see them highlighted, if you'll show that slide, please. There you go. So we see living stones, a spiritual house, chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So when we first read these terms, we should feel like it's a rally cry. You know, we're gonna ready the hallelujah and amen. But then when you look at them a second time, you think to yourself, what in the world does that mean? How can a stone be living? 
how can everyone be a priest, even non-Jews? And how can people from many races and nationalities be one chosen race and one holy nation as a people of God? These images are a list of paradoxes. Now, if we remember back to English class, it may have been a while for some of us. Paradoxes are things that on the surface seem contradictory and unable to be simultaneously true. But yet, at the same time, they are true. Paradoxes make us pause and think deeply about what truth is being proclaimed. So let's take the first one here. What is a living stone? So not everything I needed to know about life I learned on Sesame Street, but there were quite a few things. And one of my favorite songs that I still remember is in order to be alive, you got to eat, you got to breathe, and you got to grow, and that's how you know that you're alive. That was like from old school Sesame Street. Um, but we have a resident geologist here, so I was going to ask him, Dr. Wu, are stones alive? They are dead. <laughs> Good. Now, if you Google the internet, you can find these little cactuses that are called like living stones, but they're actually a cactus, not a stone, so that doesn't count, okay? Um, so instead of wanting us to figure out if a stone can actually be alive, I think Peter wants us to think about the qualities of what it means to be living and maybe what the qualities of a stone would be at the same time. So living things interact and adapt, and, and they need nourishment, and they need grow, to grow and to flourish in their environment. So it's alive, it's organic, it's moving, it's breathing, it's doing things, right? And on the other hand, a stone is solid and firm, and it's able to withstand many outside forces that act upon it. So Peter says, when we come to Jesus, who is the living stone, our source of eternal life and the rock of our foundation, we can become like him. As living stones, we stand firm in the grace and the truth of who Jesus is. He is our savior and he is our Lord. And we know that we can also stand firm in what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. He has freed us from sin and given us eternal life so that we can live with him. But we are not just individual living stones. We are being built together into something more wonderful as a whole than we could ever be as little separate stones lined up on the ground. We are being built into a spiritual house and in a holy priesthood so that we may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this image of being a spiritual house and a priesthood is a paradox too. The spiritual house brings to mind the temple of Jerusalem as pictured here. And it would be where Jewish priests who were descendants of the tribe of Levi would have come to offer sacrifices on behalf of everybody else. So how now can all Christians be called a temple and a priesthood, even if they're not necessarily of Jewish heritage and not from the tribe of Levi even? Moreover, at this time, everyone would have known that God-fearing Gentiles were only allowed to be in the outer courts of the temple. So you can see them there on this image, the court of the Gentiles far away from the court of the priests. So even ordinary Jewish people could not enter into that inner court of the priests. 
that inner enclosure where the Jews could access was actually surrounded by a wall, and there were 14 steps that you had to go up in order to enter that area. And during some excavations in 1871, archaeologists found some interesting stone inscriptions in the Jewish temple ruins. They were written in Greek and in Latin, and they read as follows, and they are offensive. No alien may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put the blame for the death which will ensue. At the time of this letter, if written in 65, the temple would have still been standing and these inscriptions would have been in place. And yet Peter turns this whole concept upside down saying that not only can all of Christ's followers now access the temple and come into God's presence, but that they are actually being built up as a spiritual temple. And they are the priests who will draw near to offer spiritual sacrifices of praise. What an incredible declaration of our identity and our value for each one of us who are now in Christ Jesus. What a declaration of Jesus's redemptive power to remove the walls that our sin has built so that all who follow him may come and worship. Now, to be sure, building projects are messy. They take a lot of coordination and communication and there are always expected unexpected delays. And then once you start your building project, you will always find new stuff that needs to be fixed that you didn't even anticipate. So similarly, as we living stones are being built together, we have to learn how to communicate and work with each other. We may not speak the same words, we may not use the same body language, we may not come from the same norms of communication. So we have to really work on communicating in ways that build up and don't tear down with all respect, love, grace, and truth. We certainly will have new problems that need to be worked out, but there will be many opportunities to exercise patience, to repent, and to forgive one another in the process. And the result will be worth the effort. It will bring glory to God. But to be clear, there is no way that we can possibly build together on our own. So how can a unified spiritual house be built out of such diverse living stones? So our next slide will be the picture of the cornerstone there. I think it's a couple slides before this. So in order to be unified, we have to have Christ as our cornerstone as this passage talks about. In ancient building projects, the cornerstone was the most important stone of the building. It was the first stone to be laid for the foundation. And it was laid at a right angle so that it oriented the walls of the building and gave it stability. So a misplaced cornerstone would have caused the foundation to be unstable and eventually would have caused the whole building to collapse. So, therefore, a good builder would never reject a good cornerstone, and yet Jesus is the stone that the builders, meaning the Jewish leaders and priests, rejected. To them, Jesus was not a cornerstone, but a stumbling block 
because they did not obey him. As Jesus says in John 14, 23 to 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home in him. Whoever does not love me will not keep my words. So the message is pretty clear. We can't have it both ways. Either we obey Jesus's words and accept him as our cornerstone in our church and the foundation of our true identity, or we disobey him and he becomes a stumbling block, an offense to who we think we are. So therefore, we must ask ourselves the poignant question that Jesus posed to Peter one time. Who do you say that I am? And finally, the last paradox is that these people who are not a people are now God's people. They are a chosen race and a holy nation. As, pre as previously said, these people are exiles, and that means that their home was not really their home. And from the world's perspective, they are without citizenship rights. But, people, but Peter says to them, once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This image has two implications. First, there's nothing that we can do to earn people status. We have been chosen and bought by the precious blood of Jesus, and he has had mercy on us. Secondly, and first, we must first and foremost be God's people. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, along with every single brother and sister in Christ around the world. Any other identities that we claim are secondary to this. And then finally, we're not just a people. We are a people with a common purpose. Together, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So, does this mean that we completely ignore our other identities or that they are not important anymore? No. The spiritual house that we are building is made up of living stones with many shapes and many sizes and many backgrounds. You'll show the next slide. Beautiful. I love this. So this is a mosaic picture. And if you look very closely, there's so many little individual stones of different shapes and colors and sizes. One stone individually can't make this beautiful landscape, but when they are all together with a common unity in Christ, we can look like this too. So our diversity of being multicultural, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, with various spiritual gifts as we are unified in Christ, has so much value. It edifies our church because we are one body with many essential parts. For a moment, look around. Each person sitting here is an essential part of the body of Christ with various gifts. We need each other, otherwise we're gonna lose body parts. It makes our worship rich and beautiful. We can sing in different languages, hear different rhythms, have different styles, and that reflects the glory of God and reflects our worship back up to him. 
Together we witness about the purposes and the promises of God, which are throughout scripture, to call all people from every tribe and every language to himself. And then lastly, we're a foretaste of heaven. As we were worshiping in song this morning, I thought about this verse that I was going to get to to talk about. It's from Revelation 7, 9 through 10, where John writes, I looked and I saw a multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne, before the lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So City of Refuge, who are we? Are we living stones being built together so that we may offer spiritual sacrifices to our God who is so worthy? Or are there areas where we are dry bones, like it talks about in Ezekiel chapter 37? Dry bones on the ground, disjointed, who need to hear the word of the Lord so that they can come together and be filled with the Holy Spirit and then join with flesh and blood and muscles to be a living, breathing worship for God. Is this a place where all who follow and obey God, can come and offer their gifts and prayers as holy priests? Is Jesus our cornerstone, our firm foundation, or our stumbling block because we haven't obeyed him? Finally, as we continue to grow in our identity as God's people, are we making sure that everyone is welcomed and wanted and can hear the word of the Lord? Now, in a minute here, we're going to take communion together. And I was thinking about how this verse and communion connected. Communion comes from two words, com, which means with or together, and unis, which is one. So we come together as one. Therefore, you cannot have communion by yourself. Sometimes when we go to communion, we just think about that not by yourself as God and us. But if you think back to the first communion, it was not just Jesus the Son with Jesus the Father. He was there with 12 people, maybe more, and having communion together. So during communion, we remember Christ's sacrifice for us personally and also communally. Think back to that first communion table and who sat there. It's sort of not so joyous and a little bit a little bit rough to think about. At the fishermen, I'm sorry, at the table there were fishermen, four of them, a tax collector, a zealot, which meant that he belonged to a group that wanted to bring down the Roman government. He was a revolutionist. There were brothers that bickered at the dinner table, a man who doubted him, a man who would deny him, and a man who would betray him. To all of these and also to all of us, Jesus has said, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that will be the new covenant and I'm offering it to you if you will come and follow me. No exceptions. So as we take communion today, feel free to look around. I know sometimes looking at other people is kind of weird and awkward. 
but think about each other reflectively rather than like, oh gosh, this is kind of weird. Think about these people that you have been called to commune with. We all need to come so that our sins can be forgiven and that our identities can be transformed and redeemed. These are your fellow living stones, uniquely made in the image of God, your fellow priests, God's people, the ones with whom God has commissioned you to build his holy sanctuary with Christ as his cornerstone. To the praise of his glory so that we can proclaim his excellencies and witness to the world about who God is until Jesus comes again. Let's pray together. Forgive us, Lord, for not following your command to love one another as you have loved us. That great love sent you to the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for not treating every person as someone who is made in your image, valuable and precious to you, for who you sent your son to die for. Forgive us, Lord, for building walls of hostility rather than being living stones being built into a spiritual house for the praise of your glory, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, when we negotiate with your word rather than follow it. Help us, Lord, to obey you and make us make you our cornerstone. And Lord, we just need you. We cannot hope to truly be a reconciled people without you. And I pray, Lord, as Paul prayed for the Philippians, I pray that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve of what is excellent, so that we may be pure and blameless for the day of when you come, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ, for your glory and for your praise, O God, and even some. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen.